Welcome to the Gospel for Life podcast. We help churches make disciples. And now, here's your host, Daryl Dash. Welcome back to the Gospel for Life podcast. Well, how are you? Chances are you would probably reply, you're busy. It seems that no matter what happens, no matter how much time we have, we just feel like we are perpetually behind. And uh, I really appreciate the guest that I have today, well, because she is one of my favorite authors. And she's also writing about one of my perpetual struggles, which is feeling like I just need to get ahead, that if I found the right productivity hack or technique, I would finally be able to make life work. So I'm excited to talk to Jen Pollock-Michelle, and she has written a new book called In Good Time, Eight Habits for Reimagining Productivity, Resisting Hurry, and Practicing Peace. I love every one of those things, uh, reimagining productivity, uh, resisting hurry, and practicing peace. I need those things. So I'm excited to talk to Jen today. And uh, so Jen, welcome to back to the podcast. Thank you, Daryl. I always love chatting with you. So you and I are both recovering productivity junkies. <laughs> Why are we so drawn to the topic of time management? Oh, I mean, probably related in some somewhat to your introduction, just that we feel busy. And so and busyness just really it feels so terrible. You know, it kind of always feels like this hurry that keeps you running past the life you want to live. And so I think that desire to slow down, to kind of like just be able to savor and enjoy life, I think there's a lot of that desire that fuels time management. And I think if we're probably honest, too, it's a lot about control. You know, it's just that idolatrous impulse to want to control our lives, you know, want to, and also want to be kind of the hero of the story. So <laughs> sin, I guess, should we just say sin? You said junkie. And I was like, gosh, that's a. That's a telling term, isn't it? But yeah, I think I have been a productivity junkie. I don't know if you remember, but uh, one of the first times we met, you you said, uh, I think, what is your the theme of your blog? And you said, I think one of the themes that you touch on is productivity. And I remember when you said that, I felt really convicted because I was like, Dad, I don't think I want my blog to be about productivity. <laughs> so. I, do you remember that? I was I so convicted when you said that. I do not remember that. And that is really revealing, isn't it? I do remember. It is revealing. I remember reading, I remember writing about time early in like my earliest blog post. And I have to confess that there was this really awful analogy that I used once about time being like a tube of toothpaste. And you could always squeeze more from that tube. And I just think back and think, oh, Lord Jesus, I hope that, you know, those went, those words were carried away like the chaff. Oh, man, I, I agree with you. So, Jen, I remember periods of my life uh, where I didn't feel rushed. And it felt like, I mean, even the other year I visited a friend and was off the grid for a couple of days. And it felt like it felt like it had been a week. And it just felt like I had entered a different dimension of time. And, uh, but those times are rare. It seems like most of the time we're running from event to event, feeling perpetually behind. So uh, why is it, why is it that, you know, growing up, I kind of felt like time was endless and, uh, it just felt like there was no time pressure. 
And now I just perpetually, I think a lot of us feel like we're, we just can't keep up. What, what changed? Well, I do think it's really important to note that the conditions of time are changing. Um, we can really beat ourselves up for how we feel in time. Like, gosh, you know, why am I feeling so anxious and hurried? If all, you know, it must be something wrong with my heart. And while I do think that there are heart elements to that, we know from research that time is actually really speeding up. So if you look at how fast, you know, I can't remember the exact numbers, but how long it took for TV to come to 50 million households, radio, I mean, radio, then TV, then the Internet, like those intervals of time shrank and shrank and shrank. And so we're just seeing that information is proliferating. We have far more um, interruptions and distractions than we did 20 years ago. So we as long as we continue to be tethered to our smartphones, we don't get in uninterrupted time unless we really, really choose that. Um, but it's difficult because for the conditions of work these days, especially past the pandemic and so many people, those boundaries between work and home being really porous. Um, so people don't feel that they can turn off their smartphones, even though they may be at home and it you know, may be dinner time. So I think the conditions of time really are changing, but I also think you're describing just the experience of joy. And one of the cool things that I learned about in my research is just that joy is actually one of those times when time itself really does feel like it slows down, where we just sort of lose our sense in time. And that's one of the habits that I encourage people towards is just, you know, entering communal practices and experiences of joy. Um, and I do think that that ultimately is the promise of the gospel, too, and where the whole story of scripture is leading, you know, is to eternal joy. And so that's pretty cool to think about. It's very cool to think about. Well, you mentioned uh, the pandemic, and I, I know in the book it, uh, you get into this a little bit, but I remember March 2020, there was that feeling of all of a sudden time has changed mm. and we have endless time. And uh, before very long, I would hear some people really did feel that sense of uh, abundance, right? That there's unlimited time. I didn't. I felt like I was busier than ever. Mm. And what did the pandemic reveal about our relationship to time, do you think? Well, I think we all do. I definitely do feel that there's not one single experience of the pandemic and pandemic time. Um, for me, I definitely felt that I had more time on the one hand, you know, like I didn't have to travel anywhere, had my whole calendar canceled, no events. I wasn't even driving my kids to school. So some of those ways in which, you know, I'd normally be busied, I wasn't. And so I had more time. The interesting thing for me, though, is that I didn't feel any less anxious. I actually felt more anxious. And and on the one hand, you know, somebody might say, well, that's because we were going through this global crisis and maybe you were afraid of dying or getting really sick or people getting sick. And I mean, I think that was part of it. But I actually think it was the anxiety of time itself. Now I you know, have this time that I've never had before. I've always been complaining about being busy. So now I'm responsible for it, you know, and what am I going to do to not waste it? And I think that is kind of the ethos that drives a lot of anxiety is like, you know, if you have a spare minute, a spare second, and you're not using it wisely and note the vocabulary, you know, use, spend, waste. If you're not using your time wisely, then, you know, 
And I think especially as Christians, then, you know, maybe God's really disappointed with you. And so that's the kind of burden that I felt in the pandemic. Do you think that this is a, partly a personality thing? Is it, you know, uh, driven people or is this kind of a universal struggle that most people in Western society are dealing with now? I mean, I think that certain temperaments are definitely given probably to more time anxiety than others. I mean, I would definitely put myself in the category of, yes, you know, kind of typical type A. I read my first time management book in college and was like, I've found my people. <laughs> you know, this is so cool. You can read books about how to, like, keep a calendar. This is amazing. Um, and I know that not everybody feels that way. But I don't, again, I think it's that idea of like the heart, you know, heart, everybody has their own particular heart issues um, with regard to time, but everybody experiences the conditions of time today, that the present moment is becoming ever more fleeting, that we all feel that time is more and more scarce, becoming scarcer, which is such a strange thing. It's such an irony because technology was supposed to give us more time. And, you know, everybody's kind of heard that the story told of, um, you know, the economists standing up at the beginning of the 20th century. Like, what are we going to do when all these people have extra leisure time? You know, how are how will they cope? And of course, that's not true. So I do think that temperamentally, some people experience this to a greater degree, what I call time anxiety. But I think it's pretty impossible in the kind of industrialized, you know, world, which runs on measures of productivity and efficiency, it's pretty difficult to escape feeling anxious about time. You know, I picked up your book and I was really drawn to the uh, idea of habits and, you know, thinking, okay, Jen's going to give me some practices that I can follow that will help me be more productive. And <laughs> Instead, I got in there and I, I think it's actually you're giving me habits that are really going to help me uh, ch change my relationship with time. Mm. It's not necessarily about getting more done, mm -hmm. but it's about, uh, you know, just things like uh, one of the things you talk about is receiving, which is not a productivity hack, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's just a different posture. So talk to us about what is the significance of some of these habits? How can we change? Because I think, uh, you know, they're not habits like hustle. They're actually a different kind of habit. So mm -hmm. speak to us about that. Yeah, it's probably not fair for the subtitle to be reimagining productivity, but because it's really more like rejecting the category of productivity. So I think what I'm trying to do in the book is is question a lot of the assumptions around productivity. Like, is this a good? Is this an infallible good just because you get things done? You know, are you living virtuously just because you're busy? Like, do you have a meaningful life? And of course, like I, I really want to challenge a lot of those assumptions. And what I want to do is I want to replace um, the word productivity in our in like our biblical, like in our lexicon, our everyday lexicon for describing the flourishing human life. I'd like to replace that with fruitfulness because I think it's a far more biblical image, and I think it's an image that allows for kind of the ebbs and flows of what it means to be human. So, for example, one of the habits being received. I mean, one of the things that is not usually talked about in time management is are the limits and the constraints on our lives that we have to receive. Um, that, you know, no amount of cleverness or time savvy 
is going to make me not have five children, you know, or not. It's not going to help you, you know, change your life as as a pastor. Like there are certain limits and constraints that we all live in and have to live into. Sometimes it's the constraints of ill health. You know, there, you don't read a time management book um, and where they generally address issues of like chronic illness, for example. So I think that living a better story of time is is in the first place, it's like living a more human story of time. What does it mean to live in a body? What does it mean to live in community and belong to one another? That's another habit. Belonging to other people. I realized how resistant I was to the idea of community because you know what? People are like a massive interruption, right? If you have a to-do list, the way you get through it is you shut off your phone, you lock your door, you like don't talk to anybody. And that's really a appealing and seductive in in one sense, you know, because again, if your measure is productivity, but the fruitful life in the Bible is always pictured as a communal life, as a connected life. So I'm, I'm challenging people, you know, another category, another habit would be wait, you know, what, what room do we have for waiting when productivity is like the sole good? If you just have to get things done, then you're like, you just need to work faster and faster and faster. And waiting, I think, is really God's way with his people. It's impossible to read the Bible and not see that so many people are left waiting. And we're even recording this in Advent, which is a season of waiting in the church calendar. So I'm, I'm asking people to sort of lay aside the idea that productivity is the ultimate good to reimagine the fruitful life. And I think those habits uh, and the habits in the book are really about fruitfulness. When we began to plant our church uh, 10 years ago, we, we went through the hardest year of our lives. And I had all these dreams of what I was going to accomplish that year. And honestly, there were days when Shar uh, and I would just get up and we would feel like we can get to the end of the day and still be basically alive. <laughs> we're doing well. And, uh, so that was really humbling for me because I think that I have this idea about what I'm going to accomplish. And it's really, as you talked about, you know, viewing ourselves as the hero, like we're in control of our lives and that we can, you know, basically manage our lives and with the right techniques, we can accomplish a lot. Why is it so important to actually to lay aside that illusion and to realize that we're not the hero? You know, there's a lot about our lives that we don't control and, um, where we're actually submitting to God's sovereignty. And, you know, by the way, that year ended up being, I think, a very fruitful year. Mm. I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but God taught us lessons that year that we probably couldn't have learned any other way. So yeah, talk to us about that. Cause I think a lot of books are all about taking control and basically taking the hero role where it seems like a lot of times we just don't have that luxury. We're not the hero. Mm-hmm. This is such a huge question, isn't it? Because I think we're talking about the most elemental aspect of the Christian life, which is about trust. And I had somebody actually say to me, I feel like this whole book is about trust, trusting in God, trusting in God as God, you know, and we as not being God, you know, we as being creatures, he being the creator. I mean, this is this is, I think, the constant invitation of what it means to follow Jesus. And I think the pandemic was kind of the perfect backdrop for the story, quite honestly, because 
prior to the pandemic, I wasn't for sure that this was going to be a book about time. But if you had asked me if I'm going to write a book about time, I would have said, I'm going to tell you how to get things done. (laughs) And then I realized, you know, the pandemic was like, I was just that perfect backdrop for saying, wait, how much can I have zero control? The entire world shut down and none of us could do a single thing about it. We couldn't you know, make church start again and school start again and work, you know, go back to the office. And like we couldn't protect ourselves from illness and, or unemployment or all the all the kinds of losses that happened over the year. And so when I was really just kind of grappling with that, grappling with my own anxiety, I mean, I think Jesus is our loving shepherd, you know, in those places of anxiety is often saying, you know, come a little bit closer. I have some things to tell you. I have those those loving things that I have to tell you will lead you into greater trust. You know, the green pastures, the still waters of trust. And I think that's what started to happen to me. And then it was just then that's when I kind of had that idea of going back to the time management books and really kind of looking at the assumptions. Um, I had a book that I want to give credit to a book that I read early on that was really helpful to sort of. I don't, I guess, sort of illumine some of those assumptions. And it was a book called Counterproductive by Melissa Gregg, um, I think published through Duke University Press. So it's an academic book. But um, yeah, these things like so I remember one of the things that she talked about in an early time management book. So basically you have time management starts early 20th century. I mean, honestly, even a little bit before that. But it's coming to executives kind of middle of the 20th century, and now it's trickling down, you know, to the rest of us. So I think it was 1973, there was a book, Getting Things Done, not David Allen's Getting Things Done, Alan Lakin, I think, was the author. And he said, everybody has three choices in life. You can drift, you can drown, or you can decide. And deciding was like the ethic of time management. You will decide how your life goes. And again, I just thought, well, here we are in the middle of a global pandemic. I can't decide. But what I can decide, well, what I should say is I can't decide the terms of my life. What I can do is choose the good portion, you know, which is a Psalm 19, Psalm 16 language. You know, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. I will say to the Lord, I have no good apart from you. That's the choosing that I can do, the choosing of trust. I know in the book you talk about uh, learning some of the ancient practices of the church, you know, praying the hours. And um, talk to us about that. How has that helped you to reimagine your relationship with time? Well, it showed me a lot of my resistance to praying. You know, I had an established habit. I mean, because I'm, I guess, because I'm a good evangelical. And, you know, you learn as like, at least me growing up in the church, you know, it was like, you need to have a quiet time. You need to have a morning quiet time. And that looked like setting aside, you know, a particular um, portion of your early morning hours and you would read and you would pray scripture. And it was like, and then you could kind of get on with your day, I think. And no one said it that explicitly, of course, you know, but that was a little bit of my mentality, like check, you know, met with Jesus now ready to like tackle my to-do list and get to get to the important things, I guess. Um So I started to learn about praying the hours and in the middle of the pandemic, that just actually felt like a little bit of like a grounding habit. Um, You know, noon would be come the time where not just we eat lunch, but we pray, you know, and I would finish my work day and I would pray. 
and go to bed and pray. And so just these different times of day, um, it just helped me to be oriented, I guess, in time. And I think very truthfully, I looked to do it originally because I didn't want to feel as anxious as I was feeling. And what I realized is that every time I sat down to like pray outside of that morning time of prayer, I was like, oh, interruption. You know, what I felt in my heart was an urgency to just get on with it. And it was an inc- I met so much resistance to just stilling my heart, I guess, in the middle of the day or at the end of the day. Um, and but that practice started to counter that is all I can say. I have a whole chapter on practicing, like how just it's like lacing up your shoes and going out for a run. You know, you the first time you do it, you're miserably slow. You hate every moment of it. You can't wait to like turn around and get back home. And the first drizzle of rain, you're like, there it is, my excuse to stop. Um, But then the benefits start to become their own reward, you know, and the own the catalyst for continuing on. And that happened for me with praying the hours where I started to realize nothing's as urgent as I think it is. And the best thing for me to do is to return over and over again to the idea that um, I can be still and know that he is God. And there was a lot of just, yeah, urgency that was kind of sloughed off my life. I mean, I don't want to say that like I sit down now to pray the hours and like it's all like wonderful. I still, you know, I still feel that inner resistance to it. And I think that's accepting the conditions of what modern life feel like. But it means that I have to practice different ways of being in the world. That's so good. Jen, you and I both talk a lot about the importance of habits. And I know that you and I also have encouraged people to begin with small habits. I was really convicted with a passage in your book in which you say that sometimes you fear that we treat God like a pigeon mm. begs for our scraps. And I read that and I, I, yeah, it just hit me with uh, just a lot of conviction. How do we help people build small habits, but not stop there, not just giving God the scraps of their lives, mm. but maybe that's a good place to begin, but not a good place to end with just giving God the bare minimum. Yeah. I I mean, I tell that story of how hearing, you know, somebody preach and saying, you know, if you could just give God five minutes of your day. And, you know, on the one hand, like I was super sympathetic to that. And as a new believer, that is exactly what I was encouraged to do. You know, spend five minutes a day praying, spend 10 minutes a day reading the Bible. And I think that that encouragement to start small is what people need because otherwise they're not going to get, they're not even going to like lace up their shoes and get out the door, right? You know, to return to the running metaphor. But it's really interesting to think about how much investment people make in other areas of their lives, isn't it? You know, like if you, let's just take the fitness analogy, you know, that there are some people who dedicate so much time to training for marathons or getting to into their CrossFit um, program or, you know, whatever it is, or bulking up or just, I don't know, walking. I don't, um, and though that's a wonderful thing, but it's kind of like, oh, how interesting that people would invest so much time in that or, you know, decorating your house. I'll just take that as an example. You know, how much time people, and I, I'm going to put myself in these categories, you know, too. Not maybe not the fitness. I don't, <laughs> I'm not necessarily training in any rigorous way for anything, but 
how, you know, you want to decorate your house and how much time you put into scrolling Instagram and going to the thrift store and, you know, whatever it is, dreaming about what your house is going to look like. So it's just interesting to me that as Christians, we are nervous to tell people to invest more time in the spirit in their spiritual lives, because what we think will be perceived is this idea that you're working for your righteousness, right? And we're never running people to misunderstand. This is all by grace. We receive our lives from God, and anything that we offer back to him is by his grace alone. Yet, you know, I do think that it's like, well, if you train in other areas of your life, if you invest in other areas of your life, like your career didn't get built just because you sat on your hands, you know, you went to school maybe, or you did that internship, or you, you know, spent longer hours at the office. You did it, you invested in that way because it was important to you. And that's what I want people to hear. I mean, how silly would it sound if, you know, we went to a conference, I don't know, and it was like, here's how you become the next best entrepreneur, let's just say. And they said, just put five minutes a day into that dream you're building. Like, it wouldn't even make sense, right? They would be telling you to give your all. Um, and I think that's what Jesus says. He says, you got to take up your cross and follow me. Like, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life for my sake, you're going you're gonna to find it. So I, I feel, though, I feel you, the tension that you must feel as a pastor, that on the one hand, you don't want to discourage people out of the gate. You don't want to make them feel like, okay, now it's time for you to lift 500 pounds when you literally are a little baby. But it's like, but commensurate with your stage of spiritual maturity, like put more weight on, invest more of yourself in following Jesus and loving your neighbor for his glory and for your good. Do that because honestly, it's not, it's for your joy. It really is. Maybe sometimes we're not calling people to a high enough standard and the reason they're not responding is they're not challenged, right? Absolutely. They're actually looking for something that's going to be hard because mm -hmm. we're made to do hard things. Yes. So I believe yeah, that. So good. So Leaf by Nickel is a story by Tolkien that I really appreciate. And it's about an artist named Nickel who has a dream of creating a work of art. But, you know, the roof begins to leak and he's got to rake the leaves and his neighbor needs help. And he never gets around to actually finishing what he envisioned. Mm. And uh, near the, I guess he goes on a train journey, the, depending on how you interpret the story, it's the afterlife. And he sees what he envisioned and he was never able to accomplish in his life. And I just love that story because it feels mm. like that's life, right? Mm -hmm. You and I have these dreams of the books we want to write and what we want to do with our lives. And yet we have to drive the kids to... <laughs> You know, wherever we need to, you know, pick up the dry cleaning, we need to take out the garbage. What hope does eternity give us for our interrupted dreams here on earth? Mm. I guess I go to a place like Psalm 90. And what we get in a place like Psalm 90 and other places in scripture is like the scale of our lives. Like our lives are very small and they are very brief against the, you know, against God's everlastingness. Um, the hope, though, is that our hope like isn't in ourselves and really isn't just in our own small, and I'm going to use the word petty ambitions, just like because it's just in the, just to sort of channel the idea of smallness. You know, if our 
ambition really is for kingdom good. Well, we we know that God has all the time in the world, you know, to get his plans and purposes done. And I think that's what we're doing every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. You know, your kingdom come, your will be done. That was happening before I was born. Unless Jesus returns, that's going to happen beyond my lifetime. So again, it's another thing that kind of sloughs off the anxiety and the urgency. It doesn't say dreams, you know, don't dream big things or don't plan for, you know, ambitious kingdom enterprises. I think those are like big, beautiful. We're made in the image of God, you know? So we, and we were commissioned to make something of this world. So I think ambition is good. Um, But I think it also, we just know that our ambition is, every ambition we'll ever have will be mortal. It'll be, you know, I mean, a kingdom ambition, I guess, mortally executed, you know, in our, in our brief lives. But again, we're going to, the veil of time is going to be drawn back. And I think we're going to see ways in which God worked through us that we had never planned, never intended, things that happened by grace. Um, And it probably won't really matter because it's all going to be offered to Jesus as an offering of worship to him. Yeah, God doesn't seem to be in a rush with many things. And um, it's a good lesson to learn Mm. for somebody like me who's always in a rush. (laughs) Jen, how has writing this book changed you? And um, I imagine that you wrote this book because you're a fellow struggler in this area. So how has this book helped you and and changed your own life? Mm -hmm. Well, it was really fun actually to write the epilogue where I basically just say, I'm not going to give up reading time management books. Like I do think temperamentally, again, I'm probably going to be that person who's always looking for ways to you know, do things a little bit more like to streamline things. And I don't even want to use the word efficiently, but I guess I'll just use it because probably that's the most honest way of doing it. You know, I don't want to waste time unnecessarily. But what I say in the epilogue is that like, I'm just, I'm not actually going to believe that I'm managing time. If I'm reading those books and, you know, maybe finding some helpful practical tips I think that when people have opportunity to offer practical help to people who struggle in time, that's a great gift. And I actually think about this pastor that I chatted with at an event months ago, and he was just swamped, you know, and just kind of didn't like, what, what can I read? I'm like, well, you know, there are some great books that can just give you some strategies for how to like manage a lot of multi, you know, concurrent projects. But when you read those books, or at least when I start to read those books and continue to read them, like, I know I'm not going to be managing time. It's just not something that I can do. Um, So I think that's one thing is it's just kind of giving up on the idea that time is something to be managed. Um, So I really am trying to engage practices of receiving time. Um, And then I think I would also say that practice is just a huge part of it. You know, there's an important way why that's a habit. And I think the frame of the book um, is I think that we get to learn and relearn and learn again and forget. And so I definitely don't think that this book is like once and done. I'm past time idolatry. No, probably not. Um, But I know that I do have more peace than I originally did, I think, going into the book, certainly (laughs) more peace than at the beginning of the pandemic. 
and different practices I feel that I can that I can lean on to learn, you know, more time faith. I remember uh, reading a book a few years ago, and uh, he said, if you really want to read a practical book, read theology. And uh, it's much more practical than the practical books. Mm. And I feel like your book is like that. It's if you want to improve your use of time, actually, the book to read probably isn't a productivity book. It's a book like this. So I just appreciate it as um, I think somebody who's going to have to read it a few times Mm. to get it through my head. So thank you so much for the book. Jen, I wanted to ask you a couple of uh, personal questions mm-hmm. if you're game. Yeah. What has God been teaching you lately? God has been teaching me lately about his compassion. So, um, you know, I think we realize when we have maybe an insufficient picture of God because like our love for other people fails in some way. So like I fail to love somebody and then I realize, oh, it's because I have expectations or resentments or, you know, unresolved anger um, or a lack of compassion, truthfully. And I think just being in a season of life where, as you know, we moved to the States in order to care for my mom who has dementia, that has always been a difficult relationship for me. And so I feel like I'm like practicing things that do not come naturally to me at all. I don't naturally have a tender heart towards my mom or compassion. And I know that the only way that I can practice that is to experience it. And so just even, you know, even very familiar passages like the parable of the prodigal son, you know, and seeing God's gratuitous love for people um, through that father welcoming back that son who didn't deserve you know, the kind of royal welcome that he had. Um, yeah, I think I think that that just experiencing God's compassion for me in new ways so that I can hopefully live compassionately towards others. And what's encouraging you lately? God's people, <laughs> for sure. You know, um, it's been... You know, it's it's interesting to move to a new place and you don't know anybody and, um, you know, feeling kind of the loneliness of that. And by God's providence, I have a friend who also just moved here um, in some very similar, like the parallels of our lives are very striking. And she's such an encourager. She's like not only the kind of person who says, let me pray for you, but like, let's go on a walk and we're going to pray together. You know? <laughs> Um, you know, just she's checking on me and texting me and like, it just makes me feel like I can survive, you know, the world's troubles. Um, when I have, when I have a friend like that. Yeah. That's that one of God's greatest blessings mm. right when we need it too. Mm-hmm. It's good. How can people find out more about you and your book? People can go to jenpollockmichelle.com and there, I mean, I don't know when you're releasing this episode, but there's some ancillary resources that are available there. Um, I am occasionally on social media, like kind of occasionally. Um, so I don't have a real routine there, but uh, Instagram and Twitter mostly at Jen P. Michelle. Um, yeah. So I hope people will check you know, check out what I have free on my website because it's there for people to use. 
Well, Jen, you are one of my favorite living authors and somebody I always enjoy talking to. And this book is no exception. It's a, really a gift and very timely. So thank you for writing it. And I hope that a lot of people read it. Thank you so much, Daryl. Good to talk to you. Yeah, you too.